welcome to What the Duck, a podcast with real experts talking about direct spin challenges and experiences. And now, here's your host, Source Day's very own manufacturing maven, Sarah Scudder. Thanks for joining me for What the Duck, another supply chain podcast brought to you by Source Day. I'm your host, Sarah Scudder, and this is the podcast for people working in the direct materials part of supply chain. I'm at Sarah Scudder on LinkedIn and at S. Scudder on Twitter. If you are new to the show, make sure to follow this podcast so you don't miss any of our direct materials supply chain content. Today, I'm going to be joined by Mark Alaric, and we're going to discuss how to empower workers to make improvements on the production floor. If you work for a manufacturer and are struggling with the thought of giving your team the authority to make process improvement decisions, then this episode is for you. Mark is a systems thinking expert. He has experience in researching and purchasing production machinery and creating standard operating procedures for workers that really understand that their job is quality, how to run the equipment, how to handle materials, maintenance, troubleshooting, and the job sequence. Welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure. So you have an interesting background. You wanted to be an artist, but became an expert in continuous improvement instead. What is the story behind this transformation? It's interesting. Growing up, my favorite artist was Leonardo da Vinci, and I copied his work, and there were some artists in my family, two professional artists, and I thought there'd be a direction I'd go in. But I studied da Vinci, and I was wondered why he would, why was he my favorite? And it wasn't until later on I learned he, this fellow was a systems thing. He studied the human body. He studied the ecology. He studied the land. He studied everything and, and drew the systems not just an eyeball, but he was drawing a complete circulatory system and all that. So I learned later, this is something that attracted me to him. And he was also such an inventor and innovator. And two, two elements that are extremely important as being a systems thinker. So does this mean that you are an art collector? No, not really. I have my favorites, but I still dabble from time to time. And I'm a great copyist, so I've copied some Winslow Homers and, and N.C. Wyeths and all that. I did one for my grandson and all that. I, occasionally, I just have to do something. But I didn't want to stand in front of an easel for eight hours a day or more. When my dad started his little company, he invited me to join him. And he bought a machine, terrible piece of equipment, that stuffed envelopes, a very antiquated one. And I was hooked. I was hooked on production. I was hooked on the magic of boy, I can go get business for this. And someone might pay me $5 for every thousand pieces that would come out of this machine. And I was just hooked on production. We, we developed a direct mail production company from that. I was going to say envelope stuffing machine sounds like in the realm direct mail, which it sounds like it was. You gave up your career of being an artist, and it sounds like you still dabble in it as a hobby, which is nice to hear. What did working for your dad's direct mail production company teach you? Aside from starting a business and how a business operates, a system of, of elements that work together, finance and production, all that, I learned that from direct mail, direct marketing, that it is truly a system-based media, like unlike other advertising, because you need data, you need printing, you need equipment, you need to understand the product. You have to understand the customer and the offers and all these things have to come to and coordinate into the whatever the direct mail piece might be. 
and we had the equipment that would collate all the materials and put it in. But our job was to make help the customer in their mission, which was to get more customers. So we just weren't like production, ink on paper, anything like that. But we understood the system of continuous improvement because the data that we received after the mailer, the response, we would analyze that data, and then we would understand from that how can we improve the mailer for next time. And so it's continuous improvement as a media was extremely effective. And I learned all about that really from doing that. So walk me through, so you worked for your dad for a while and what next? Walk me through your career progression. Yeah, he had, he, after 10 years of working together, he passed away and I relocated to Chicago. And at one point I got introduced to, to systems thinking through a client, actually a direct mail client, who said they used the principles of Dr. Death for their production company. And I'm thinking, okay, I need to study this a little bit more. Russell Lakoff, actually. And I was as I was studying it, I'm going, this is how my brain works. My brain works in systems like that. I have to understand holistically. I, you cannot understand a part, a part, you cannot understand a system by analyzing a part. You can analyze all you want, all the parts of the car in... Uh, in Britain, you can un- analyze all those parts, but you'll never understand why they drive on the wrong side of the road. So I learned things from that. Amen to that. I was just watching a show last night and I could not get over the fact that she was driving on the wrong side of the road and I would never be comfortable doing it. Never. Absolutely not. And the more I studied, the more I realized that you cannot ap- improve one part and expect improvement of the whole. And this is true of a business because most businesses really run in silos, not as a system. Procurement does not talk to finance, except as adversaries, sales and marketing, production and finance. And you have all these silos. And so the systems approach really grasps that. And this goes down to the worker. If the worker does not understand the system, the only to understand a part, the only to understand certain functions of their job, they will never understand the job holistically because their number one job, workers don't know what their job is. They don't know what their job is. They think in set in terms of, these are a set of functions that I do. I do this, I load that, I do that, I fix that. They don't understand that their job is quality. Their job is quality and improvement. Once they understand that, then it opens a whole world of all kinds of knowledge they need to know about in order to be able to help the company in terms of improving in quality. Poor quality costs a lot of money, and that's the problem with the workers. Mark, when you and I were prepping for the show, you talked a lot about something called production optimization. So can you define what is this and how does it work? Production optimization is actually downstream from operational optimization. We talked in systems again before that a an oper- a operation in general that is optimized, you have all of these elements, all these business units contributing to the goal of the of, or the mission of the company. A production optimization, like what I learned in direct mail, all these elements were collated, so to speak, in order to create success for the production line, the production line and all that. Who understands just one part of their job, they're not understanding the entire how the entire line operates. And this is something I talked to one company about. I say, you you can't have your workers only working in one area of the production line and never in others. 
because they'll never understand the entire system. A production line, optimized production line, is a system. So they, again, it goes back to they have to know that quality is their job, and that means their eyes are open on the entire production line. They see what they might see something that's going on that might be wrong or right or an improvement, and the more workers understand their entire production system, how it operates, and the ramifications of how it interacts with other parts, not only in the line, but other parts of the company, and even with outside vendors, they will never under, fully be maximized or optimized in their job. And you'll never, and it's the frontline worker who sees where the improvements need to be made. But there's a number of bottlenecks to that. What does good production, what does a good production optimization system look like? Like, how can we build a kind of a best practice for people that maybe are interested in doing this at their manufacturing? It goes to the importance of the optimized operating procedures. Everybody must be optimized in an optimized way trained in their job. And as I explained before, that when you are when you're fully trained on the job, more than just your little siloed function, more. You, they need to know more than just the specific area they're working on. They need to know what's going on before and what's going on after. Because every section, whether it's a company or whether it's a production line with all these machines, it is the interaction of the parts that make it successful. It's the interaction that makes it successful. So if I'm on a, at this one, one company, they were passing defects from station number one to station number two and down the line, realizing that station number five would fix it. That kind of interaction with the part means that they're sending defective parts from station to station. And that is hugely wrong. And that's why the individual, the worker, needs to understand not just the function, but how their station interacts with the station preceding and afterwards as well. It's hugely important. So for this one company, we're receiving can plastic canisters from the vendor, and some of them are defective. And they're going all the way down the line, like 100 feet or more, passing off this defective canister. Now, what is that causing? What's the real cost of that defective canister? Not just the 33 cents they paid for it. Let me throw that away, get a refund. But all these workers are working on it. So you have to understand your job holistically and optimized operating procedures just don't tell you what to do. They tell you why. They help you understand the interactions that are going on the line. It's quite a training. It's quite a training. And it's improving their skill set and knowledge. Yeah, I, it seems like it would almost be something where you set your team in shifts and every two weeks or however much time you're doing different parts of the production line. So everyone on the team eventually is going to know how to do every step of the process. So somebody's out sick, you have a, an emergency, something comes up. It's almost like you can plug employees anywhere in the production line without having an impact to the actual production schedule. That's exactly right. And that's something I tell them. You've got to switch them around for boredom's sake, at least, because some of the tasks can be pretty, pretty mundane for eight hours. So this seems like what I would call a no-brainer. Why wouldn't everybody want to do this? Seems like their employees will be happier. They'll have increased their skill sets. They'll have a voice. 
why do so few manufacturers actually optimize their production? I'm baffled by this. I can't speak for all manufacturers, but I was really surprised with, because I have a continuous improvement consulting firm, and it's not just about standard operating procedures, obviously, it's about many areas. But I was just surprised at some of these large companies who would reach out to me and say, we need them redone. They had them, but they need them completely revamped because they were missing so many things. They were having such trouble with defects and rework, and I'm not sure they really understood the full cost of it either. They're having such trouble. And at one point, one of the engineers said something very insulting to me, not at me, but he said, are these people, these workers, do you think they're like of low intelligence? And I said, I've worked with these people. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Too many of them are are afraid. There's fear-based management, which is still rampant. I'm looking at the one client that are going on the back. We're supposed to have a meeting on procedures and all that stuff. Can't do it now. Can't do it now. I got to run in the back because there's an emergency. This happens like every day. There's always an emergency. There's always a fire to put out. And all all these managers are doing are like they're managing outcomes. They're not managing the real root causes. I'm not saying all companies are like this. You've got the Toyota production system and and all all the information is there. But it still goes back down to I believe that the employee worker, by and large, is devalued, is not valued as they should be by the company. And they tell me things. They tell me ways to make improvements. And they're a great resource for that. It is, I'm not sure what it really is, Sarah. It's just, this is free. This doesn't cost them anything, really, except maybe redoing the SOPs, which by and large, they don't have the internal expertise. They're using the operating procedures from the equipment manufacturer. And if you've ever read those, I'm sure you have, they're really written by somebody who's a, I'm not sure any kind of a writer, let alone a tech writer, for the maintenance department. And if it's especially put together by a foreign company, you see some of the darndest phrases in there, which are useless for the operator to to learn about how to do their job in a maximized way and quality. So what have you seen as been the trigger point where leadership teams come to the realization that, wow, we need to do something. Status quo is very comfortable. It's very easy for all of us. We get set in our ways. So I'm assuming it's some sort of impact to revenue or some significant impact in the business being shut down or not being able to fulfill large customer orders. Yeah, there's a number of bottlenecks on this. I think when I say fear-based management, one CEO came up to me and he said, uh, Mark, you've got to help us cut costs. And I said, you've got that completely backwards. A strategy for cutting costs is like a strategy for saying, I want to go out of business. The problem with that is the reversal of that is improve quality and costs will reduce automatically. You won't have the defects. You won't have customers that are sending products back. Some of the unknowns, the intangibles, are like, what's the cost, the real cost of a customer that leaves you and goes to a competitor? What is that real cost? Kind of an intangible, but maybe not, but it's really sitting there on the table. What is it worth you to keep your customers instead of giving them to your competition because of poor quality? Impact to revenue sounds like that's one thing. What else have you seen work in convincing leaderships to empower their employees to make improvements? We may have people listening who aren't necessarily the decision maker, but would love to see this happen at their organization. That's why I have a coffee table conversation with these companies and say, let's take a look at what you have and why do you think it's not working or what really is not working? What is preventing 
your profitability or you're making your numbers? What are those areas? And so we have to look at those bottlenecks and prioritize them. But one one big area to me, I think, is one company said, we've got like $300,000 a month in defects and rework and all these costs. And so I'm, I'm saying that's hitting, not just hitting your bottom line, but it's preventing you from offering a product at a lower price that can be produced faster. Because defects, of course, slow down the production line as well. You're not going to make your numbers. They want 85000 a day. They're producing 55000 a day. And I'm looking at pallets and pallets of defects, reworks, sendbacks, and all that. But I don't think they're looking at it systemically on how this is affecting everything. Who is the one that's touching the product the most? That's going to be the, the frontline worker, by and large. Who's the one that's going to know what the problems are? I have had them give me ideas that were the darndest solutions. Some work, some not. But they've got ideas on how to do it. So we need an environment in the production facility of testing. This is something I've almost never seen. With the business world, it's always been ready, fire, aim. Here's an idea. We're going to go out with it and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But in, in the manufacturing environment, we need a like a testing laboratory going at all times. Can we try something? No, we can't stop the machine for a minute. You have to. You have to. Because you're going to stop it anyway with all the defects and rework and everything. So let's do some heavy testing. That's something that I really, it's more than bring to the table, but I really emphasize with the clients. And who are those people that should be sitting at that table, the test table? Frontline workers, for sure. Middle managers, for sure. Whoever whoever we can find. Vendors. Vendors are treated like buy them by procurement, get the lowest price. So that lowest price has ended up costing us how much in production? Does anybody know that? If we paid more for the raw materials to get a better product, we had a vendor that was truly a partner at the table with us or the machine manufacturer sitting at the table with us. And so who's on that team? Who's on that bus? And that's something I think can make a tremendous difference. Where's the downside? Mark, what does you talked a lot about testing, which I'm in alignment. I think that's so important in a manufacturing plant to not only be testing for new products, but testing for ways to produce what you have more efficiently and more effectively. What does a good testing process look like to you? Start with the bottleneck. What is, what's the bottleneck that you think might be the game changer? Is that? And we're saying that if, like in the theory of constraints, you have five, five machines in a row and one's doing 10, one's doing 10, one's doing three, the other one's doing 10 and 10, your average is going to be three at all times. And so what are we doing to exploit that bottleneck, the one that's doing three? And we're saying, I'm saying that what will make a difference? You can test almost anything. This is a little, not totally true, but you test almost anything manually or without much expense. So if this is producing three, what will it take to have, either we get another machine in to get that up to six or whatever those problems are, we create scenarios. We create a scenario on what would happen if we could do this. And so I had one, one client where I felt they were a silkscreen shirt printer and they would print the front, they'd print the back, they'd print the collar, print both sleeves. And I was convinced that both sleeves should be printed at the same time, not on two different machines separately. That would be like a 25% increase in production. Can we test this? Can we know? And I've, I gave them three different proposals on how to do this where they can be done. We did some testing. It could be done. And it just takes a relentless commitment. I've seen top managers discard something that could make a double difference in, because of some emergency or fire, or we don't have the money for that and all that. There's a corporate mindset 
that has an adverse to, to trying something new, then that comes back down to fear. And the fear based on we've got to cut costs, we've got to make these numbers. That's what's that's what's that's the biggest bottleneck to the testing, I think. And who typically do you recommend should be overseeing the whole testing program? Who's that decision maker that should be owning and managing that process? I would say the top person at that particular division, at that organization, at that location, or maybe somebody higher. This is, these things I'm talking about require a commitment from the top, including these operating procedures I'm talking about. There has to be a commitment from the top that we're going to do this and we're going to empower the team to do it. Or I say that, or don't. Because if you leave it to mid-managers and they're putting out fires, and I can tell you, from I mean, we're talking a big Fortune 500 company, and I had a hardest time getting information out of the managers because they're running around with their lab coats and back and forth, and because there's putting out a fire all the time. So without that top commitment, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. it? Because one of the places, I'm not sure they even use the procedures I created, and I'm not sure. They had to be done, and they moved on to something else, and it, it did not get to the floor. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm really suspicious. And the procedures Have you work. been able, the other thing that comes to mind about this whole cost of not empowering frontline employees to make decisions and be proactive, have you been able to quantify what are the costs for a manufacturer for not doing this? Tell them, look at, look at your defects. The defects are caused by, by, I want to be careful, it's not caused by somebody. It's caused at some point on the production line. You've got machinery, maintenance, parts, vendors, and the personnel involved. It's totally quantifiable. Just look at your defects. And we get them down to the defects, and nobody can do anything about this half of 1%. That's not the point. But you're talking about $300,000 because you're passing defects from station to station and not fixing it at the point of defect. I think that's very quantifiable. And I told him, I said, your problem is you're so dependent upon inspection after the fact, after it's too late. You're not using your inspectors at the point of where the defects are happening. So put a quality inspector you shouldn't need one, but put a quality inspector at that point of defect and don't allow anything to leave that station. That's quantifiable. It, that's a whole rack of them. And you can figure out how much money that cost on that. Or defects from the vendor. That's very quantifiable. That's being passed through the system. It's not just the cost of the canister. It's the cost of everybody handling that. That's quantifiable if they want to know. I've got a, I've got a background in data compiling data and reading data and reporting from data, but this stuff is, it's there. It's very transparent. So it sounds like defects are a really important part of the identification process. And once you can see how many defects you have, you can pretty quickly come up with a calculation. And then that, when you actually see a number, I think it can sometimes be more impactful than just talking about something yeah. without hard metrics behind it. I want to pivot just a little bit. We've been talking a lot about how to actually convince management, be open to this new process that you're talking about. What happens when management says, yes, great, we want to do this. We want to empower our employees. 
what steps should be taken? Because this is a big mindset shift for the workers. They're not used to giving feedback, a process like this. So that can probably be very overwhelming and actually scary in some cases for them. Yeah, it can be. I really love these people, if I want to put it that way. And I work with them. And they know there's somebody who's working with them. And I encourage them. And I am SOPing with them relationally as we're working. And what do you think? What's your opinion? And that's great. What would you do to improve? And so what's really needed here is we need a really solid production supervisor who has worked in that area for a long time as a resource. But it's the people on the floor, the operators and, and the other supervisors are very good. However, they don't always do the same things the same way particularly between shifts one and two. That's going to be quite a difference. So when I present the first draft of the operating procedure, the supervisor looks it over and he said, makes some changes. And they say, this is how they're doing it, right? I said, that's exactly how they're doing it. This is wrong. Okay, let's modify it then. Let's change it. How do you want them to do it? What is the idealized design? We're working from the ideal. What is the ideal for this? And that is obviously no defects, you know, the job is running well, the production is doing 85,000 a day. We work from the ideal and work backwards. How are we going to get there? So I tell them, you're going to need to put some resources into this, and that's going to be mostly people. And I've got to have access to somebody who is going to be available. And then I bring our people in that we're taking pictures and videos and all that. And I'm trying to encourage them to do videos more too, because that kind of a visual demonstration. People remember 10% of what they read, 90% of what they see. Try to make this a little system, but um, I've got to have the top managers committing the resources and personnel. Otherwise, it goes really slow. Thanks for discussing how to empower workers to make improvements on the production floor today, Mark. If you have anything to promote or a project that you want our audience to know about, now's the time. Tell us a little bit about what keeps you busy nowadays and maybe where people can find you. Okay. GMOllerick.com, my website, and the same thing to access LinkedIn. Please call me, of course, just for a conversation is fine. I'd like to know what you think about that. It's just interesting. I'm involved in innovation. I work with the ASQ Innovation Committee. Also, continuous improvement of all kinds, how to eradicate, whatever those things are. But I'm just seeing that the real opportunity, I think what's really important is that made in America affects our economy, our jobs, our growth, our stability. And I really want to see American manufacturers excel in to develop those world-class products and the revenue goes with a competitiveness. And I believe that this is a secret sauce or secret weapon. This is one thing, not the only thing, but what's keeping me busy right now are the standard operating procedures or optimized operating procedures. And I just finished doing 12 of them for a Fortune 500 company. And that's what's been keeping me very busy. I'm interested in talking to others about this and see what your opinions are. If you missed anything, you can check out the show notes. You can find us by typing in What the Duck, another supply chain podcast in Google. If you have the optimal search results, make sure to add another supply chain podcast. To ensure you don't miss a single episode, make sure to follow this podcast and subscribe to us on YouTube. If you are new to the show, make sure to follow this podcast so you don't miss any of our direct materials supply chain content. I'm at Sarah Scudder on LinkedIn and at S. Scudder on Twitter. 
This brings us to the end of another episode of What the Duck, another supply chain podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Scudder, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.